Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of the Valley Golf Guys podcast. I am Mark, along here with Kyle and Dave here today. We are broadcasting live from the Valley Golf Guys studios here, tucked away in some random corner. We don't have Chris here today, so we don't really have anybody to make fun of. So it might not be quite as many laughs uh, that you might no- normally hear, but uh, we'll still make fun of him even though he's not here. I'm sure we'll have plenty to say about him. So without uh, further ado, I'm here with uh, Kyle over here on my right and your left. Here with Dave over here on my left, your right. And uh, we'll go into a little little background of us, give you a little bit of information about who we are, uh, give you some credentials as to why we can be doing this. So Kyle, why don't you why don't you tell the viewers who you are? Give us a little bit about who you are. Sure. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, really excited about this here. Uh, just as a brief note, Valley Golf Guys podcast. We like to talk about anything golf in the Valley here in Arizona. We'll also spread it around to other parts of the country, but we like to focus here in the Valley. We talk about other fun topics as well. Just kind of whatever comes to our mind, whatever we think the viewers might be interested in talking or listening about and uh, kind of what uh, comes to our head. Uh, as far as me, um, Started playing golf when I was seven years old. Grandma got me started in a junior program uh, back in Wisconsin. Um, and I was part of that program all the way until the age of 18 when I finally got to uh, the end of my high school days and had to decide what I wanted to do for a living, right? Everyone's got to kind of make that decision eventually. What do you want to do for a living? College is coming up. What are you, you going to do? And that's probably one of your first adult decisions that you kind of have to make. And as a 16-year-old kid coming up in high school, you're kind of like, what do I want to do with my life? I'm about to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars on an education. Right? Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do but like at that time, or did, was it something that kind of just came out of the blue? Well, in high school, obviously, you're focused a lot on having fun and enjoying your time, but you got to make that, you know, have those thoughts start running through your brain a little bit. And I knew I liked cars, and I knew I liked golf. So my uncle ordered, owned an auto parts store, still does, in Oconomowoc. I worked for him through high school. And of course, I bounce ideas off mechanics, and they're like, "Go be a golf pro. <laughs> Don't be a car mechanic." It was pretty quick. Yeah, so I was like, "Okay." So I talked to uh, my local PGA professional at the the private club that I, uh, you know, was playing golf at, and he gave me a lead to go to Ferris State University, which is an accredited PGM program through the PGA of America in Michigan. So that's where I applied, got accepted. Um, so I went and graduated from Ferris State in Michigan. I uh, went four years there, and uh, Got elected as a Class A PGA professional uh, in uh, 2010. So it's been, can't believe how fast time flies. It's, yeah, that seems like it was just yesterday, but when you actually think back on it, it's actually been quite a while. Yeah, it does It does feel like yesterday. It was like, yeah, January 2010 is when I was elected Class A. Um, and, you know, I've had, uh, you know, the fortune to work at some really nice clubs. Uh, I started working, my first job in golf was at Geneva National in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. You know, three courses there a player, a Palmer, uh, and a Trevino course. Um, so that was fantastic. My second internship uh, was at Bandon Dunes in Bandon, Oregon, which if you haven't been there, it's extremely abs- popular golf destination. Right, an absolutely amazing golf. Uh, just as an experience unlike any other. Um, some of the toughest golf I've ever played. Actually, I think I broke three clubs during that summer <laughs> out of frustration. <laughs> and I've never seen you break one. Right, ex- exactly, so. exactly. Uh, and I was a hot-headed younger kid at that time, too. So um, a great golf. And then my third and final internship uh, was in uh, Palm Desert, California at the Lakes Country Club. Um, and then after that, kind of bounced around a little bit, spent a decent amount of time in California, then moved back to Wisconsin, 
uh, spent a little more time there, and now here I am uh, in the Valley of Arizona. Uh, it's a great place to be. Yeah, absolutely. So, And it's funny here, and I'll give you my story here in a minute, but it's funny how many different places that people come from here. I mean, they're here, they're coming from all over the world, all just because of this one sport. Right. And I think that's really why we're doing this podcast is to bring and shed light on some of the great venues that we have here and uh, some of the, the kind of the golf life that goes on around with it. Right. And I mean, myself, just as you, and I mean, even our guest Dave today, golf's kind of our life. It really is. You know, we uh, eat, sleep, breathe golf. And uh, that's kind of what we do. That's where all of our attention goes pretty much each and every day. So it's, this is awesome that we have this opportunity to do a podcast, talk about golf in the Valley and golf in general and uh, entertain people while we do it. It's a fantastic opportunity. Couldn't agree more. Um, As for myself, uh, I grew up in Westminster, Colorado, a little suburb outside of Denver, about 20 minutes, right in, beside, right in between Denver and Boulder. Um, pretty much CU Buffs territory all around that area. They weren't really that good at anything. It was right after the Cordell Stewart days were kind of like my memory, so they weren't really that great. Um, but I went to Stanley Lake High School, uh, played golf there all four years. Uh, we ended up going to college, uh, junior college for two years, got a full-ride scholarship there in Trinidad. Uh, in southern Colorado, uh, then went to a four-year school after that in uh, Alamosa and Adams State College, uh, and then I just kind of had enough after that, um, kind of got out of golf for a while, got offered a job in the oil field business, so that was uh, quite a bit different than anything I was used to, but it, it, it also had a lot of parallels too because it taught, it, there was a lot of discipline that was necessary, a lot of hard work that went into it. You had to really put in more time than anybody else, so um, a lot of those things kind of applied to golf, and after I'd kind of had enough of that, I just decided I wanted to get back into golf, and that's when I came here um, and just started, you know, just getting back into playing more and working more, and then just decided I wanted to become a PGA professional. I'm not quite there yet. I am in level two of three levels in the program, so I'm making my way through it, almost done with level two, um, but looking to get that PGA membership, and I, I know when I get that, I will be very happy. So that's, uh, that's definitely a very, very prestigious thing to have. I don't have a college degree. I didn't finish my at Adam State, so it would definitely be good to have. I'm looking forward to having that and uh, just love playing golf pretty much any time that I can. If the weather's nice out or we're not doing something like this, I'm probably going to be out on the course. So. Right, and which is nice that we live in Arizona where we can play golf almost every day of the year. Yeah, a handful of times. That's only about it when you can't. I mean, right. if you can handle the heat, you can play pretty much any day and if and you know you can't see it out here, but it's uh, about what? About 100 today? 102? About 100. A little bit of humidity looking right out the window now, nice and sunny, nice day. Probably a lot of people out on the course. Um, playing golf, isn't it? You know, a lot of days like you said you could just get tons of days to play golf. It's the place that you want to come if you want to take your game seriously. Growing up in colder weather states like both me and you did, I saw a big disadvantage um, in terms of the kids that grew up down in these warmer weather states. When I went to college, there was kids from Arizona that grew up down in here um, that were just worlds better than all of us in Colorado just because they have the full year-round access to it as opposed to four or five months. So um, this is definitely the place to be for golf and don't want to be anywhere else. Right, absolutely. I mean, growing up in Wisconsin, if I wanted to hit balls in the wintertime, I'd have to drive 30 minutes into Milwaukee from Oconomowoc and... It would be this little golf dome, which, I mean, they probably had 50 stalls in there, but the ball only travels 100 yards before it hits the other end of the dome. And 
Yeah, and we got little mat we're targets. Talking, like we said, 2006, 2007, it wasn't really popular with these indoor golf places that you can go to now, no. right? Where like, then I know I just went back to Denver recently, and there's all these indoor golf places, Top Golf, what it have you, where you can hit balls year round. So it does make a big difference. Right. Exactly. Well, uh, before we keep talking there, let's uh, let's introduce our guest here. Uh, we have Dave. Dave is a pilot. Uh, lives down here in the valley. And uh, is a very avid golfer himself. So we'll let Dave uh, go ahead here, introduce himself, tell us a little uh, little bit about him, and uh, get him in on our conversation. Hey, welcome. thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, welcome, Dave. I'm David Lancaster. I'm a commercial airline pilot here in Phoenix. Fly all over the country, but uh, golf's my love. Lucky enough to have these two guys to play with a lot, two of the two of the best young teaching professionals in Arizona. We happen to uh, hang around at one of the same clubs here in uh, Arizona where I've been a member for about four years. And and uh, when we moved out here from Texas about 10 years ago, we were up in the Prescott area and then came down here about four years ago and lucky enough to meet these two guys. And we've played uh, many thousands of holes together and done some good battling. So I appreciate them having me on. I've got two young kids. I've got a 14-year-old daughter who's a cheerleader, and I've got a 10-year-old son, Hagen, that's uh, becoming quite the golfer here and uh, actually just got back from Pinehurst where he uh, finished in the top 50 in the uh, U.S. Kids World Championships. That's impressive. Yeah, it was a great deal. He really did well, and unfortunately not – or fortunately, however you look at it, I've kind of become more of a caddy than I am a golfer now, but it's – it's great being a, a dad to somebody like that. So That might pay off in the long run. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking for that for a retirement plan. But uh, everything's going good. Enjoying playing golf and uh, thrilled to be on the podcast today. I'm really proud of these boys for what they're doing and hope you all will support them. Well, we couldn't, uh, we couldn't have picked a better guest to have, and especially today as a guest host. Uh, Chris Andrus is normally with us. Uh, he is out today. So we have Dave for the full length of the podcast. Normally, we just have a little guest segment. You're blessed with him for the whole segment today. So got a lot of good stuff to talk about here. Um, Dave, you mentioned you were a commercial airline pilot. Being a pilot, I'm sure there's a lot of crazy different stories you have, but have you ever had to have like a crash landing or kind of, you know, do something that was highly unexpected that you were not ready? Or I'm sure you might have been ready for, but just did not expect. Well, let's see. After about 20,000 hours, there's the flight attendant stories, but we won't talk about those. Uh, <laughs> back in the early days when I was flying uh, more corporate-type stuff, had a uh, had an incident coming out of Austin, Texas, one, uh, one early morning, and uh, basically blew an engine up coming, coming off of runway 17 at Austin, the old Bergstrom Airport there in Austin. And uh, that's about 3,200 feet when the uh, engine blew up with smoke coming in the cockpit. I had two fellows in the back, friends of mine that were business associates of ours. One of them was our architect and one uh, a business partner, development partner that we had uh, done a lot of stuff with from Austin. And both kind of novice flyers in the uh, in the corporate world. They'd flown plenty commercially, but it's a little different when you're in a smaller type airplane. But unfortunately, this airplane only had one engine and that one decided to blow up. So we were right out over the uh, uh, the north side of Austin, which if you know Texas at all, that's the hill country and it's rocky and not a lot of places to land. But uh, uh, thank God we, uh, <laughs> we found a field and uh, had about uh, probably about a minute to uh, decide where we were going to land and put it down. And 
basically uh, I turned to those guys and said, hey, when, we're, when we hit the ground, you guys get out and run because at that time it kind of appeared that the plane was on fire. What it really ended up being more was just smoke of, of oil hitting the hot engine and coming into the uh, cockpit. Well, and stuff. you never know at that moment. So, I mean, it's just get the heck out yeah, of there. Yeah, all you know then is you need to get that nose down and keep it flying and find a place to land that you can walk away from. But to make a long story short, obviously I'm here today, so it all worked out good. Uh, What's the first thing that you do when that happens? Like, the first thing I did, I put the newspaper down I was reading. <laughs> I turned and told them. Obviously, they knew because they'd heard it. But, you know, oil on the windshield, smoke coming in. Basically, it was turn to them and say, secure everything. We're, we're going to go down. And, and when you do, uh, as soon as we do touch down and we're stopped, they know how to open the door and everything from flying with me before. I said, get out of the door and I'll. I'll be right behind you. And I still remember as soon as I stopped, it seemed like about two seconds and out of my peripheral vision on my left side, looking out of the, the pilot side window, I see two grown men about 45 <laughs> years old running along. And I thought, man, they were listening. They were out of there in a hurry. So yeah, it, I mean, what, what were they? Were they freaking out? Were they panicking? They were, uh, they never panicked. They, they knew cause they'd flown a lot with us and, and, uh, they knew something was bad wrong for me to, to not joke with them and just say, get out. And they got that part right and got out and the plane wasn't on fire. It was just mainly the smoke off the manifold and stuff. But, uh, the neatest thing was that the fella that was our business partner, the following week, my wife and I are sitting in at that time, my girlfriend are sitting in the living room and a limb about a 45 foot limousine pulls up and knocks on the door and they load us up. He drove us to Austin from San Antonio, took us to a Jethro Tull concert, nice. got to sit there and out to a real nice dinner, and then drove us back to San Antonio as a, he claimed I saved his life. You know, I saved my life, and they happened well, yeah. to be in the plane, too. You but, never know. I mean, yeah. one little, one wrong step in that situation, and I mean, oh, yeah. it's a whole different story. So you did all the right things to get it down to the ground. So, I mean, I'm sure he's yeah. highly thankful. It was a good day, lucky day. That's what you're trained for, so. Well, yeah, because you get one shot. Yeah, that's it. You're right. You got a glider at that point, right? You're in so. a glider. That one, <laughs> that, propeller, no that propeller wasn't even turning anymore, so wow. it worked out good. And usually you see those guys in gliders. They have a plan. They know where they're going, right? right? So <laughs> now you're in a glider with no plan, and you have no idea where to go, so. How do you keep speed up? As you're coming down, keep the nose down. So you just keep the nose down, and then towards the end, just pulling up again. That's it. And I was lucky enough that there happened to be a little field down there. It wasn't mowed or anything, but it was good enough to slam the plane down. And I think all the damage we did was balded a tire a little bit, trying to kind of skid to a stop. But that's, that's unbelievable. Crazy. Yeah, the funny thing was is we ended up selling that airplane right there in the field <laughs> to a, a friend of mine who's an airplane broker. He bought it and put a new engine on it. And then he conveniently asked me to fly it out of there for him after they mowed the field down and stuff. He claimed to be out of town that week, but uh, he uh, he said, yeah, can you go ahead and bring that back up to San Antonio? So I said, okay, I'll do it. So Get myself, right back in that plane. I made the mechanic that hung it on there. I made him ride back with me, and we flew it back to San Antonio yeah, at from there. at least you got some accountability with you Absolutely. there. Absolutely. <laughs> nice. Well, that's awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah. That's a fantastic a story. story. I could hear that every day, and it <laughs> right. never gets old. I'm pretty sure I would have sold my shorts. If... Yeah. I would not have been a good passenger at that no. point. You would have been yelling at me. <laughs> yeah. Shut up. Quit whining. Quit crying back there. You're not going to die. <laughs> I wouldn't have been. I would have been running fast, but I don't know if my legs would have been moving fast oh, enough yeah. to keep me moving. So what we're going to do now, we have a few golf-related topics that kind of 
are related to all golfers. All golfers can kind of talk about that know about. I'm sure Dave will be able to get in on some of these and know about some of these. So I'm going to turn over to Kyle. Kyle, what you got? All right. So we got three really good topics to talk about here today. Um, and they are in no particular order. Uh, number one, unsolicited golf advice. So give me an example. Playing with your buddies on the golf course, you ha- go ahead and happen to top one, and your buddy, that's a 25 handicap, looking at making a six on this hole is going to give you advice on how to not to do that on the next hole, right? Okay. Okay. Good example. You know, something like that. Yeah. We'll, let's, we'll, come we'll, back we'll elaborate. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll elaborate. Now, okay. What's number two? Um, number two is the kill box. What's, what's the kill box? The kill box is an area where you definitely don't want to be located, or if you are located in this while someone else is hitting a shot, keep your head on a swivel. Okay. That sounds intriguing. All right. What's number three? Uh, number three is early calling putts, or in other words, get your mouth off my golf ball. I used those exact words last week. Someone I didn't know. Fitting. Yeah. Yes. I was a little upset. All right. Let's, so let's, let's go back. We'll talk about number one. So let's go back to some unsolicited advice. Now, being professionals and being teachers, we see a lot of advice and we hear a lot of advice that has been given to our students by other people in other groups or in their group, right? They see them playing. So what, what is, give, t- tell me something about the unsolicited advice, something that you've seen recently or so give an example right so uh unsolicited advice for me is any advice that i don't ask for okay just like i guess unsolicited would be defined i guess it's pretty clear (laughs) right if i want help or want to know why i'm doing something wrong there's only i can count on one hand probably on two fingers the people that i would want to have give me advice without asking for it okay other than that please don't say anything okay because I just hit one right off the tee, all right, doesn't mean I don't know why I did it, okay, or what I need to change. Right, there's a lot of things happening in that short amount of time. You might have known what you did. Right. You don't need someone else telling you. Right, and the same thing goes for me while I'm playing with a group of other people. I'm one, even though I'm a teaching professional and my job is to make people better at golf and have them not miss shots, I'm not going to give anybody advice on the golf course until they ask for it. I, I couldn't agree more on that, and I... I let you elaborate a little bit more on that too dave but i think being a professional when you just randomly play with somebody obviously when we're out on playing lesson we're giving tips and instruction and helping them out but in our line of work we just go out and play with people a lot too um and i think sometimes people expect advice or lessons in that time right when we're just playing casually correct completely casual nothing serious and there's nothing really i guess wrong with that but i don't want to contribute to unsolicited advice. I'm not just going to come up and randomly say something unless I know someone really well, you know, and then maybe I work with them. I see something that's standing out to them, but that's not really unsolicited because I'm working with you. Right. So when you're just going to randomly come up and say something to somebody that might be totally not what they need to hear. Right. Exactly. And, and, and when I'm playing and I'm playing with other people and I'm playing casually, right. I'm also focusing on my game a lot. So I have so much going on in my own head about my game because golf is very hard that I'm probably not even watching you that closely. Right? If I'm just playing casually, I'm now right. not even watching your swing that closely. Sure, I saw you blast at 30 yards right, but, <laughs> right, but I didn't see but why. I, didn't see why yeah. you know? I just saw it go right. Right, I know the face was open. <laughs> That's about There's the only definite. probably def- one of two things that could have <laughs> happened to make it go that far right. right exactly, exactly. But other than that, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep, keep everything to myself. So when I'm playing with someone and... It, even, you know, not necessarily does it have to be someone that's a worse golfer than me, 
But unless I ask for advice on, hey, how can I, did you see anything there? Did it look like my ball position was messed up? Did it right. look like that was fast? Unless I ask for it, you know, please don't say anything because I'm probably not too happy I just hit one OB. Right, yeah. I'm, I'm just steaming at that mo- moment. You right. Know? I'm d- I don't want to hear why I did it. I know why I did it. Right. I, we don't need to hear that. And I think, you know, as far as to the amateur golfer, I mean, you know, us, I mean, we obviously have a really good idea of what we're doing with the golf club. And when we miss, we probably have a pretty good idea of why, right? But an amateur golfer, there's a chance that they might not know, but then their buddy chimes in and they're going to take what their buddy says verbatim, right? And they're, Completely. right, that person might have no idea. They just heard, read that golf tip in Golf Digest, you know, earlier this morning and they think they're going to throw it, you know, put it into play right away. Because that's the one missing link. Right. So, you know, my, my word of advice to the amateur golfer is, you know, take what your friends say with a grain of salt, you know, go see a professional. Right. Right. And we, you understand they're trying to help. They're but trying to help. It's not necessarily helping. Right. Exactly. And then also, word to the amateur, please be careful, you know, t- to what you say and giving advice to someone else while they're on the golf course. Correct. Do you, do you feel that too? Have you gotten some unsolicited advice recently or <laughs> anything going on? Almost on a daily basis. What? So, being a, I mean, you're quality wise, you're pretty much a professional golfer, but being an amateur golfer, what does that, do you see that like in your workspace too? Give people giving unsolicited advice, or do, is that, do you see that mostly like on a golf course? Well, I happen to be in a profession that the two guys up front kind of share information. It's not so much uh, advice as, hey, you're making a mistake there. Let's get it right. That's what we do in the aviation world. Right. But I, I agree with you guys. Is the rule I'm teaching my son, my 10-year-old, who's really coming into his own as a golfer, is if you're debating between telling someone something about their game or not, go with the not. Let them right. play right. their game. They'll ask you if they want any of your advice. You sure don't need to do it un- unsolicited. And And on that note – for guys, especially guys that are competitive golfers, say you're not a say you're a twenty or a twenty five and you're playing with some guys at your club that are good players. You don't have to say good putt on every single putt. Right. They don't want to hear that. Right. They don't appreciate that. Just play the game with them. They don't mm-hmm. mind that you're not that good, but don't feel like you have to say something on every shot. And the other thing you don't need to do is if a guy, like Kyle said, has just hit 130 yards right, he knows that. You don't need to elaborate on it or say, oh, look, looky there, look what happened there, because all that does is he's already mad. You're just exacerbating the problem when you do that. So Yeah, the gears just yeah. start turning. And I more. try I'm – a, I'm a fairly proficient golfer, but I rarely give swing advice because I'm an airline pilot. I'm not a golf professional. I've had no instruction in it, and I – I would never try to teach someone else how to do something that they can go get done for a reasonable price from a a, a, a certified instructor. Right, and the, the interesting thing is, as a better player yourself, right, you know when you hit one right, most likely why you did it. Yeah. But someone that you know might have a hard time breaking ninety, you know, is going to give advice to someone how to not hit it right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, it just doesn't add up. I mean, a term I guess would be that's that you hear is the blind leading the blind in that, right? Yeah, that's so, very true. It's a good way to put it. Yeah, it's and it's it's not necessarily to make fun of anybody, no. but we want to help you. We want you to get better. We don't want you to see we don't want to see you wasting your time doing things that you don't need to be doing. Right, exactly. And maybe maybe the you know the practice area is a little bit better for that that yeah, time. Not the not, golf not in the golf course. Yeah, not a 30, <laughs> you know, 30-yard wide 
480-yard par four. Right. It's not the best place for it. Right, exactly. All right. Well, uh, topic number two. Uh, number two. Go ahead. Was, was that the kill box, I believe? That was the kill box. Right. So um, the kill box is an area. Let's, for example. Let me get that graphic up there. Let me get the graphic right, up throw there. Throw that up. All right. So perfect. As you can see in this graphic, we have a right-handed golfer. Okay. And the kill box is this kind of triangular. We call it a box, but we could maybe more call it a kill zone. It's kind of this like triangular area just to the right and just in front of that right-handed golfer when they're about to take a shot, right? Right. And the, we uh, let me throw a little caveat in there. The kill box size is different for every golfer. It's different for every golfer. So more speed, the bigger the kill box. Right, Less exactly. Less speed, smaller kill box. Right, exactly. And the more speed, the... The closer you are to that golfer, the less time you're going to have to react. More dangerous kill box. Right. I mean, we've played a lot of golf. All three of us have. And we've seen that golf ball come off a hosel very hot and go, for a right-hand golfer, go right very, very quickly. Very quickly. Right? And that thing is on a beeline. And it's going to do damage to whatever it hits. Right? It's got to hit something. Right. So if you're, if you're in this area, you have to keep your head on a swivel. You have to be watching that golfer take a shot. Because if you're not paying attention... I it's mean, coming out of you really quick. It's going to come at you very, very fast. And depending on the shot, the kill box might be different. So like a, a sand shot, for example, directly in front of the person. You don't want to be true. between the flag and the person. No. Or you or don't want to have the flag. flag in between you and the person is what I'm trying to say. Right. You don't want to be in that zone because it might come at you pretty right. hot. Everyone's bladed one out of a bunker or skipped one out. That, oh, yeah. that comes out fast and goes 20 yards further than you're expecting it. I'm sure I've done it more recently than not. Right, and that's sometimes the only reason that ball stops because it hits a tree or house, yeah. right? And or gets to some really long grass. <laughs> right, exactly. So we, you have to stay either clear of the kill box or if you're in it, acknowledge it, be aware, and make sure that you're ready. So just a little public service announcement more than anything. Stay out of the kill box. Stay out of the kill box. You see it. Too many people just hang around the kill box. For sure. Especially better golfers, right? You get a little bit, a little bit further. Right. You get more comfortable. Hole, you're right. ready, but it can happen anytime. Right. It happens all the time when we play. We're always kind of, you know, for pace of play, right? Everyone wants to play quickly. No one wants to play in five hours. So someone's hitting, right? And you're next to hit. You might not be in their direct line, but you're going to go kind of forward of them and be by your ball, your laser in the yardage, trying to figure out what club you're going to hit. So you're re- right. So you're ready to hit. But at that same time, you got to be ready for this other person to hit because even even a scratch golfer from time to time, it's coming in. It's going to find El Josel. Yeah, yeah. Josel <laughs> is coming out. Oh, Dave, you have any thoughts on that? I think just the main thing is remember most of us are usually riding in the Arizona area because of the temperatures and things. But that golf cart can be quite a shield for you if you know how to play it right. And <laughs> yeah. when that guy's over that ball and you find yourself in that kill zone. Just remember, you can quietly, subtly just bend down behind those seats. You've got the windshield in front to protect you. You've got those seats behind you. And maybe the worst thing that could happen is you take a little blow to the uh, lower back that probably won't do a whole lot of damage. Yeah, and that is a good point with the carts. Yeah, it's, you, just, you don't want to get caught away from the cart exactly. red-handed with your pants down, standing there in the kill box with no shelter. Yeah, you've right. got to have some shelter. Some if sort. your option is standing there watching him or get back in your cart and do the old smooth move where you bend down into the seat yeah, get in the cart yeah choose the cart you'll come out ahead i couldn't agree with that more especially with uh some of these guys the way how fast they swing 
doesn't take much speed to get it going off the hosel, but when it gets that, that speed added into it, look out. Right, and it's a knuckleball coming off there. Yeah. You don't know how that thing's spinning. Yeah. You cannot read that. Just look out. That's a, that's really odd. Stay out of the kill box. Right, and and if you're in it, be at the end of the kill box. Yeah, right. Far right. Further end. away. Left-handed golfers far more, left in. More, more time to react. Yeah, you need that reaction time. That little bit, of, that could be the difference of your eye or the side of your eye. Right, that little <laughs> tilt of the head. Just get it out of there. A little dodge move. Yeah, do everything you can. Right. So even if that's the most athletic move you do all day, get out of there. Right, exactly. So, all right, number three. Uh, what is number three? I forgot. All right, number three. Here we go. This is a good one, too. Uh, I like this one a lot. Uh, this Everyone can relate to this one. Okay, here we go. Early calling putts uh, slash, okay, get your mouth off my golf ball. Yes, and that's that's they go hand in hand because usually the early putt is called, and then you say, get your mouth off my ball. So they're pretty much the same thing, but it's in the sequence that they happen. It's in the sequence that they happen, right? So... You know, this can go a couple different ways. This is not only on the putting green, it's also it's also off the tee, right? You hit a shot out there and it's drawing softly towards the left rough and then it starts to turn harder and someone's yelling, get down, get down, or, or whatever it may be, and you just just don't talk to my golf ball. But I think the most frustrating is when you're on the green, you're sitting over a 10-foot and the thing looks great up until six inches in front. person says, oh, great putt, lips right back at you, stares you in the face. 180. Right. Just right, yeah, I, I I can attest to that because I had that happen last week, and it was a putt that I thought was going in completely. I thought I'd read it right. It looked really good, uh, just at one of our local tournaments here, and uh, about two feet out, the guy I was playing with early called it, and it was the third time he had called one of my two of them were out on shots. They weren't on putts, and it was the third time he had said that. It was the third bad result that I had got, so I'd had enough of it at that point, and I said, "Hey, man, can you get your mouth off my golf ball, please?" And he said, oh, I'm sorry, whatever. But just the point is, is just don't say anything. Just right. keep your mouth shut. It's easier to just not say anything. It takes effort to say something. Be quiet. Right. Tell him good putt when it's in the hole. Right, and I think, you know, Dave touched on it earlier, actually, before we even started talking about it. He's like, you know, if you're playing with someone that's better than you or whatever, you don't have to comment on every shot they hit. Right. I like, oh, you just missed that one. Oh, that was close. Ooh, you, that was, that's okay. You'll be all right over there. Right. right? Oh, I think there's an opening. Right. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to be Mr. Positive. You can be quiet. Right, exactly. Silence is golden. You won't offend anybody when you say nothing. No, I couldn't agree anymore. Have you had to tell anybody recently, Dave? Uh, I guess I'm too easy on people, but I just, I'm just like you guys. I'd, I'd rather they just keep their mouth shut. And I try not. It, it's tempting when you're with your buddies and, and you want to say something or somebody you hadn't been around and played with and you want to say something you just got to learn just keeping your game and let them play theirs. And at the end, tell them, man, that was good putting or good swinging today. But but the last thing any player wants to hear is a comment after every single swing. Especially after one that they didn't hit well. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, when and I if, had a 10-foot putt and I still have a 4-foot putt and someone says good putt, yeah. no, don't lie to me. Yeah, it's it's like, man, just keep it to yourself. Yeah, it's like I said, it's just easier to be yeah. quiet. It almost turns into a little bit of an insult, right? right. Like yeah. you said, good putt and, or a good shot, and it wasn't. Right. Like, are you being sarcastic or serious here? Well, and like, even like I even commented about one of my shots today. I hit it into some of the, the, the thick grass out on the course I played today, and I chopped it out. And uh, one of the, the guy that I was playing with, he was really, we got along really well, but he hit a shot that he didn't think was really good, too. And I commented about mine, like, oh, at least it got to the short grass. You know, it didn't go very far, but it got to the short grass. And for a second, I thought he thought I was talking about his ball. But, you know, I don't think he did, but that went through my mind. Yeah. You know, like, oh, maybe if I just don't say anything, even though I'm talking about my ball, if 
I just don't say anything, it's easier. Right, exactly. If you're ever in doubt, don't say anything yeah, at just, all. Just, just zip it. Right, no one's going to be offended. Yeah, I agree. One thing that we haven't asked, which we do ask each one of our guests, oh, yeah. right? We ask each one of our guests uh, that appears on the show, just because myself and Mark, we love to travel around the valley, especially during the summertime when courses are more available and see new golf courses. I think as a golfer, being able to go and play new places is part of the enjoyment of playing golf, right? Oh, yeah. Couldn't agree more. Right. New layouts, new scenery, you know, new greens, right? New types of grass, right? It, you know, you get a lot of different things, and you're going to find courses that you like more than others, and people are going to have different opinions on it. Not everyone likes the same golf course. So, so Dave, I know you've played a lot of golf, not only, you know, in Arizona, but also across the country. But we're going to stick this question to Arizona. What's your favorite golf course that you like to play in Arizona? Oh, I didn't think about that one before I came. Uh, Got to be Mirabelle. Got to be Mirabelle out by Desert Mountain in that area out there. It's uh, We get that a lot. Yeah, it's uh, it's just a great layout. It's uh, got uh, probably the, the top director of golf in the valley in the whole state of Arizona and maybe in the country, Dave Ingram, one of good friend of all of ours. Uh, the agronomist out there is amazing. It's always in impeccable impeccable condition and the membership out there is some of the finest guys and gals that i've ever met they're obviously successful people but they're super nice when you come as a guest and and uh just like to compete out there they got a lot of good players a lot of older folks but a lot of good players and uh, uh i've probably played out there i bet 20 times and just you just the the conditions are always so great that you just can't help but play good out there. You just kind of get into a zone and and uh, and their halfway houses are probably the best I've ever seen in the world. So, yeah, those are pretty special. Yeah, they're pretty amazing. It's a uh, quite a thrill, I'm sure, to be a member there and uh, something that I'm sure people are real real proud of. But that's probably my favorite course in Arizona that I've played. Uh, that's that's a really good choice too because it's just. When I always talk about Mirabelle, I, I say that they don't really do anything over the top, which I guess the, the halfway houses are. But um, other than that, there's nothing really over the top, but it's all done exactly how it should be. Everything is done right. It's done top notch from the yardages out on every par three for every tee box to you know having everything that you can need on the driving range when you're practicing to having the balls stacked on the practice greens to having just water especially here in arizona having water handily available um everything out there the the variety of tea boxes uh like you said the people the staff out there there's really like i don't think i've ever played there the only negative thing i've ever said leaving that place is that i ate way too much at the halfway houses <laughs> and that i just ruined myself and ruined my day that's easy to I, do yeah it's, it's very easy to it's do it's just too there's too much good stuff and it's it's just an amazing place, right? So. I, I, you know, I I love the point you make about the yardages on the par threes. I think that's probably one of the coolest things that they do, and I wish more courses would do it. It you know it doesn't probably cost very much, depending. I don't on, think it's that, but it's also it's just more that it, it's a it's from operations from an operation standpoint. It almost kind of sounds it it sounds kind of easy, but it's if you have the staff, it's definitely easy. Um, but if you go out there and you don't get it right one day, right then it's done. Right, exactly. So uh, what we're describing is, because a lot of you maybe have not played Mirabelle before, but we're describing is so as you pull up to uh, a par three, towards the back tee, the first tee you're going to pass in your golf cart, 
they have a large metal sign, and then they have uh, a list of numbers on it with the colored T, you know, associated with the yardage, and then a yardage put up there next to each T box, and that's the yardage from the T to the hole. So what's fantastic is because I think it's annoying when, I mean, if people think about it, right, that's kind of the hardest yardage to shoot all day because otherwise you can shoot it from the golf cart. Right, and a lot of the times you have to take a 30-yard hike to get the yard. Right, so you're usually bringing maybe two, three clubs up to the tee box because you don't want to walk back to the cart. Right now, you, you see the posted number. You might bring two, maybe, depending on if you're not sure what the wind's doing or if it's uphill or downhill, right? But you know, you don't have to even bring the rangefinder at right, all. Right, you just know exactly what the number is. If there's wind into, you might bring two clubs, but you know what the number is already without having to guess it. Right, and it's fun because, like, I've gone there and I've, I've double-checked it a couple times. It's always spot on. Yeah, It's, spot it's, on. it's never it been off. It doesn't even matter what rangefinder you use. There's always just right. It's, it's been perfectly spot on. So I think, I think that's probably my... My favorite aspect about playing there, other than, I mean, which is hard to choose one because, like you said, they just kind of do everything right. You know, nothing's, like, insanely spectacular. It's just, you know, from the time you pull into the parking lot to the time you leave, it's hard to find something that you're like, that wasn't very good. I don't think I could even pick one out. Right. I, I couldn't either. Like I said, the only thing was my fault and because I ingested <laughs> too, too much. much sugar. You know, and... and just to be like, to touch on that a little bit more, like, they have a really, really, really nice clubhouse but it's not like it's not like Paradise Valley where it's like you know looks like an Italian villa basically. I mean it looks like a really nice clubhouse, but it doesn't look like you're walking into someone's giant mansion where it's like you know like oh I shouldn't be here. Right, they kind of hide how big it is actually. Right, exactly. I think that's a really good point. Uh, yeah. It's still really big. They have a lot of amenities in there, but it doesn't look extremely big. You it's wouldn't know it looking at it from the outside. Yeah, it's it's, it's very welcoming. There, it's just very. It's, not that I didn't feel welcome at the other places, but it's just, you know, it seems like it's a little outside your element sometimes. Right. But Yeah, no, I would agree. And I mean, that's a golf course that I could, I'll never get tired of. Never. Right. No, yeah, that's, and I think that's something that was common too with some of the other people we've talked about is they would never get tired of playing Mirabelle. So that's, I mean, if I was going to pick a golf course, I think that's what you kind of have to pick it on is if you're going to play it every day or not. If you're not willing to play it every day, you probably don't like it very much. That's it. That's what I did when I looked around, and I actually saw some in Arizona that it was fine, but I thought I don't know if this could be my everyday club. You know? Right. I don't know if I'd, if I'd get tired of it or what. So. Yeah, you got You have to pick something that you're going to play every day, and it's it's nice too if you, if you can pick a facility that has two courses or multiple courses, it makes that decision a little bit easier. You don't have to really worry about that as much, but even when, we, when you – pick a facility like Mirabelle that only has 18 holes and we're still talking about that stuff, then it must be pretty extravagant. Yeah, That's how I feel about it too. What are, what are some of your favorite holes out there? Let's see. I'd have to say 10 and 11. I love starting the backside. 10 a great par four about, uh, I think it's about 460 from the tips. Got a big lake on the left side, kind of almost a double green, uh, two big, sides of the green with a small little neck in the middle with a bunker right there it's uh you know for a longer hitter driver eight driver nine depending on how good you hit it but it's a it's a good hole and it's a second shot hole it's uh yeah if they put the, that pin on the left it plays a whole club yeah, longer. i mean it's a good good hole and then if you're able to negotiate that and make a par there or maybe a birdie if you're lucky you got a tough par three in number 11 it's a little bit of an elevated tee it usually plays between 160 to 175 so seven or eight iron for a longer hitter uh maybe five or six for somebody that's mid-range but it's a small green 
It's got the stones, the uh, the mountain area stones. They're almost kind of like boulders, right? They're yeah. big. It, it looks like a boulder's hole, actually. And it's, of, an, it's a narrow green from front very, to back. Oh, yeah, it's narrow, and it's usually the wind's a factor. It's usually in your face a little bit, but it's got some of the coolest bunkers in it, one down in the little swale on the right, and uh, just a good hole, and a, it's a good three if you make it and get out of there because after that, it plays – fairly easy you got to get past those first two on the back side and those are two of my favorite and the par fives on the front are both good par fives both reachable with a long drive but it takes a good a good lick to get to them mm-hmm. yeah i remember last time we were playing out there we had the privilege to play with dave ingram who you mentioned the head professional out there <coughs> at mirabelle and uh, we played one of the par fives the second par five was at number seven six seven seven yeah, yeah so uh, number seven, we played that as a par four. We played it up, and then we played number eleven from the uh, number eighteen tees. And they have the, they have a college tournament out there, Maui Gym. For those unfamiliar, um, it's just a college invitational, and they try to do things to make courses longer and do little different things here and there. Um, so we played it as a par seventy, and we played uh, number eleven plays like two, just over two, a little over yeah, two hundred like, to the center of the green. Yeah, and it's it's a lot more daunting than the one seventy one eighty that it typically plays. Right, they kind of change the angle a little bit of the box. So they yeah, actually using a different tee box. Yeah, green. yeah, they use eighteen tee. the box on eighteen t for that par three. It's I've played it a couple of times there. It's it's tough. Yeah, that's, and that's into like, the wind. Yeah, that's a cool perspective too, especially because when we first started playing it there, when they first started doing it, they kind of had the trees up in there and kind of garden the eighteenth behind the eighteenth tee. Now they've kind of cleared that out to make it more look like that should be a tee shot for that hole. And it's kind of just cool seeing that evolution of yeah, it, right. I guess. I think that tournament's actually the Maui Gym's this week, I think. Oh, yeah. That yeah. sounds about They're, right. They ought to be rolling into town for that. Nice. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of, lot of big-name schools that come and play there. I think I'd have to agree with you as far as your hole selection choices there. I think the coolest thing about the 10th hole is that whenever I play it, I forget I'm in Arizona. Like you look out over the 10th tee and you look towards the fairway and you see Dave mentioned the pond on the left. And it's funny because it's like a marshy pond. Yeah. It's got the long brown sticks and stems hanging out of it. Yeah. Ducks floating around there. And it it just doesn't look like Arizona. I think that's a cool thing is you kind of feel like you're in this little desert oasis, you know, for that hole. But then you get to 11 and there's a desert again. Yeah, exactly. And it's the 11 is just as penalizing as any of the desert too so you really get pulled back into it really quick really fast yeah yeah. so it's it's really good but i would probably have to say i like number four as i think it's just a good hole i shouldn't necessarily say that i like it i just think it's a really good hole it's a really challenging hole uh really long par four kind of goes dog leg left up the hill a little bit um sometimes playing downwind but you really got to land that shot in the right spot of the green because it just kind of chases up you know, it's it's just kind of curves the whole way, kind of winds over to the left a little bit. Everything kind of feeds down to the left. If you hit it up to the right, the right club, usually longer iron coming in, just going to kind of trickle and roll down there. Um, even if you leave it up there, it's a fairly easy shot, but you don't want to miss it left. Right. And it's, I've been over there a few times, and if you are over there, it's pretty much guaranteed double bogey. Yes, it is. Right, and, and the hole can play 40 yards longer if it's a front pin. Maybe even 50. Yeah. It could be 50 yards longer front to back. Yeah. That green is long. Oh, very large green. Yeah, it's about a three or four club green. Yeah. Right. I think, though, Kyle Mark's main thing, like in four, is what's after number four, oh, yeah. which <laughs> is halfway house number one. Yeah, right, that's, exactly. That's usually my the, my first thought is when I get to 4T is, okay, only one more hole to the snack. Yeah, yeah. Right. it's right around the corner. And then you got a drivable. The next hole's the drivable par four, right. which is a really cool really hole, hole, which uh, – 
Dave told me that uh, almost none of the college coaches will let their boys hit at it, even though most of them can probably hit a three wood to the middle it's of the green. It's just too penalizing it's, if you miss. Yeah, if you miss penalizing. it. I've watched guys. I've watched some good players that I've played with out there turn that hole into about a quad right. in the blink of an eye trying to drive that green. So I've done it. I'm I, not even that good. Yeah, I right. hit four iron. And, and then a little wedge. Usually a sand wedge, yeah. and yeah. you're there, and it's a good shot at birdie and an easy par if you're not dumb. So. And that's all you need to do. I The other day I did a, I tried to lay up on that hole and hit an iron, hit it into that front bunker or a fairway bunker, just total hit a just, you know, terrible tee shot. But then I think I got it out and was right up there. But right. even with a bad shot like that, bogey's your worst score where if you blow it into the desert, you're making double. Yeah. Right. But, yeah, that's – you got to know. I think that's a course too. It's it. You have to play it a couple times because there are a couple different things that you have to know about it that are. No, I don't want to say tricky, but you just kind of have to know. Right. And I think. I mean, if you're picking a golf course out that you like to play a lot, every single hole is going to be memorable. You're going to be able to go back two days later and not necessarily recount every shot, but you're going to remember every hole that you played. And yeah. I can do that at Mirabel. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think I've I've gotten to the point where I've played it. A few times where I don't even. I, sometimes I just don't know the whole numbers, but I know the whole. Like I know like the order of them, but you do, don't associate the whole number with it. Right. You know the whole, right? Yeah. It's like there's not a bad hole out there. Right. What do you think is the easiest hole out there? I always seem to play one well. Yeah, you do like one. What about you? I'd put one up there. Although you got to be careful not to blow one out right, or you can turn that one into a double because you're tee, yep. you're reteeing. It's a lost ball. It's not a hazard. So you're you're hitting that drive again if you push one right. And I've seen many people put it out there in the mm -hmm. trees right, and you're not going to find that golf ball. So yep. you know if you're hitting the ball good, you've warmed up good. Number <laughs> one's a like they're supposed to be. It's a good starting first hole. Just a good driver and a wedge sam wedge into the green usually about a 100 115 yard shot in and i should have prefaced that because none of them are easy but right. i guess what are what is the easiest of the hard yeah. <laughs> of right. the hard holes basically. yeah that one would be in in uh the sneak the one that would win the sneaky hole out there for me is that first part three number six that's yeah. a nine iron most days for a normal hitter nine iron eight iron the wind's always a factor the wind is always a factor and that green looks small from that you're probably about 40 feet above the surface of the green, and it's. Uh, I've seen a many a good player miss that green by a long way. Oh, yeah, I've been left a few times. It, yeah, it's usually a right-to-left win, and if you catch a little hook, you'll be 20 yards uh, left of the green. And yep. you don't want to be 20 yards and left. And that is an impossible oh. up and down. Yes. You will not get up and down. Well, if you, if you can even get a club yeah. on it. You yeah. might get lucky to make four. You might not even find it. Yeah, you might be better re-teeing, actually. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Kyle, you have some thoughts on kind of John Rahm's thoughts. Yeah, so on the PGA Tour. So interesting, right? So um, we all like watching the PGA Tour. You know, I'm not super diehard watching it every single weekend. I'll pay attention to kind of what's going on, who's leading. Um, of course, the majors. Everyone's going to watch the majors, Most right? Definitely, yeah. But I kind of like hearing, you know, when a golf pro or a PGA Tour pro, you know, kind of sounds off on something that you know they don't like the system of and. I thought it was interesting hearing John Rahm, you know, this happened just a few days ago, that he doesn't like how the FedEx Cup system's set up. And we know this system has been in place only for, you know, a few years now, right? Two, three years. I can't remember exactly. Seems like they've changed it a few times. Right. Um, you know, it used to be, you know, strictly points, right? You know, they'd, they'd have points earners throughout the course of the year, and that would continue into the playoffs. And obviously, they, they knock people out, so the tournaments keep getting the last, you know, three 
keep getting smaller and smaller, right? There's only, you know, 30-some guys or whatever, and I believe in the last one in the Tour Championship. Right, that sounds right. Right. Um, and it used to be points-based, right? So as a viewer, right, when it was points, you'd have, him, you know, the top FedEx Cup pointer, and there'd be so many hundreds of points, you know, ahead of second and then ahead of third. So the guys that are commentating are trying to keep all the viewers up to date as far as their position within the tournament if they have a chance at winning the FedEx so Cup. What if this and what if that? Right, you don't know because some, you know, someone's leading the tournament but they could be towards the end of the FedEx points race and someone that is at the top of the FedEx points race is fifth, well that person even if they finish fifth and this guy wins, he's still not going to win the FedEx Cup. Well now they simplified things, right? So they're playing this week. They got one more tournament, and then the BMW, they have the BMW Championship, and then they have uh, you know the the uh, FedEx Cup Championship, right? The Tour Championship, and they're going to start that as they've done in the past few years with the leader who's ever leading in FedEx Cup points at ten hundred par, right? And then second place in FedEx Cup points will start at eight hundred par, right? And then it'll go back through the field from there. Well, John Rahm doesn't feel that's fair because he feels like well, if you win the first two playoff tournaments. You have been. You would have had a huge lead in points going into the tour championship, making it almost insurmountable for you to not win. And he was one of the two that were up there last year for it, right? So he, he this isn't just you know position nineteen complaining that they don't have a chance, or mm-hmm. position twenty five complaining they don't have a chance. This is someone who has a very legitimate chance who doesn't like how it's structured, right? And I, you know, I would kind of you know as a as a viewer, I kind of do like how they have it set up because. It's easy for the people watching the golf now to see who's going to win the FedEx Cup. Right. Whoever wins the tournament. You rely on the announcers to be telling you what's going on. You can see it. Right. Simply whoever wins the tournament wins the FedEx Cup right. versus someone that took fifth could have won it before. Right? So I think, you know, I can understand his point in, in a little bit, you know, especially if you win the first two playoff events, right? Clearly. Well, and you're you're already playing better than everybody probably in that time frame anyway. So you're really just giving them a further chance to win i mean which i guess is what you're trying to do in that situation but you're really only making it to where two or two or three people have a chance to win but if we look at that in a different sport like let's say it's football there's only two teams competing for the final championship game so i mean if there's two golfers competing for the final championship what's the difference there's only going to be one winner right so did you did you hear that quote that that he gave or did not that's funny that you said football so so this is a quote from rom he said i understand the system and the way I was told by one of the PGA Tour officials, I'm a Patriots fan, and if the Patriots win everything and get to the Super Bowl, and they don't win the Super Bowl, you don't win the Lombardi Trophy, right? My answer to that was, they still finish second. Right? Okay, yeah. So, that, so that's yeah, his answer. That's, that's it's correct, like, if yeah. you don't win the Tour Championship, well, at least you get second. Well, Someone's still going to get second. Yeah, but that doesn't happen now in the Tour Championship. What if Rahm doesn't have, you know, can't put together four good rounds... And now he finishes seventh or eighth or, you know, most likely he's not going to fall back more than that. Well, but he's still getting that handicap of he's starting at eight under, right? Right, but that's only two shots ahead, right? Yeah, two shots ahead of the next guy, but it's how many shots ahead of the guy in fifth? I I have to look it up, but I think they start to go only a difference of maybe one stroke right. from you but know that, second to third. You know, once and we know this in golf that one shot makes a big difference. It so, does. I mean that that you are getting that chance anyway. I don't know. I don't know why he wouldn't like it. Does he feel like it's unfair to him? That's what he says. Is that his quote was that he feels that it's unfair. See, and I would look at that as someone who would like. Before I didn't, I took no information on this, and I thought he was like complaining, like, "Hey, it's not fair to the field." Not saying that it's unfair to him. Right. So, I mean, I, I really, to me, to think that he thinks that's unfair to him, I think that's kind of petty. Right. 
I mean, maybe he just feels like, you know, he has a bad week, and instead of finishing second, like, you know, if it was the old point system, like, he would have no chance at dropping that far back. Maybe that's what he feels like. Sorry, you, know. you only get 800000 instead of... Yeah, it's a real first. Million. It's a well, real first world problem for those yeah, guys. Is, right? I have trouble feeling sorry for anyone. I respect his opinion. Well, I do. Uh, I do exactly. I do think it's incredible that the, the prize for winning the FedEx Cup is fifteen million dollars. Right. So I mean, and, and we all know with the contracts and things that those boys have that that that's worth many millions more than that in incentives it is. and, and even, uh, representation and things right. like that. I know, uh, uh, not a personal friend, but friend of a friend that's. Uh, one of his buddies won the PGA back in about 14 or 15, and he believed it to be worth about $20 million overall to him. So you can imagine what a name like Rom winning something like that would be worth. It'd probably be more in the 50, 40 to $50 million range in a lifetime of value to somebody like that. So yeah. maybe he's got a reason. I respect that guy because he's so well-spoken, even in a language that's not his own. For sure. And uh, just a real intelligent guy. I like watching him play. But like like we said, that that's kind of a first world problem, right? And I don't want to. I mean, I I do like the guy too. I actually like him a lot. He's a really good player. I think he handles himself well. But in this moment, I I don't I don't agree because there's since it's such an individual sport, you need to have the chance to have a couple more than just two to have a chance. But if he plays bad and has a bad week, then he shouldn't have won. Maybe yeah. he shouldn't have taken second either. You know, then it, it's we're trying to determine the full season and this stretch. You have to play good in this stretch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, we all know that going into it. It's just like any other sport. Nobody's ever quite happy with the playoff system. Look at college football, and that's NFL. They're always game. adding another wild card team. It, it's every sport. That's nobody nobody likes any way that it's uh, that it plays out. I think you just don't like hearing the top contenders that have the best chances to win it complain about it because it's already they start there. I mean, obviously they're great players, but they already have a really good chance to win it anyway. Right, and so he he kind of elaborates. Uh, you know more in this article and this article give credit to golf golf digest it's where i found it um he says at the end of the day you could win 15 events including both playoff events and you have a two-shot lead i understand it's for tv purposes and excitement and just making it more of a winner take all and they give you a two-shot advantage but over four days that can be gone in two holes right right that's what he says end quote Okay. Yeah, if you're not playing well and not well enough to win. And I think he was kind of speaking for the field. He may not have, he may not have garnered their attention and got them to go along. But I think he was protecting the whole field, not just himself there. Right. I mean, he's saying. I think he's saying this could be anybody that this happens to, and he's oh, absolutely right. For you sure. walk out there with a two-stroke lead over the next guy that's given you that by the tour. That guy, you double the first hole and he pars and you're even. You're even right away. The season's done. You've played that whole season and got to where you were and you're now tied. Right. After so one I can one hole. see his point, but again, I, right. they do pretty well out there. So, so he finishes the article with one more quote. I'll just go over this quick. He says, start quote, I don't know what system is best. I do like going to Eastlake with this new one in the sense of knowing where you stand and what you have to do. You know the years prior, so many different combinations of what could happen, right, with the points and everything. It was kind of hard to get your head focused on one thing, right? I don't know if it's a fair system in that sense now, but it's the one we have and it's what we got to deal with, right? So, he's, you know, it's kind of interesting that he says, I do like it knowing where you stand versus prior years with all those points and everything. You're like, do I have to, got to finish fifth? Do I got to finish third? How many strokes do I have to make up, you know, over the last nine holes here to, to win this darn thing, right? And at least now you know right where you stand. Yeah, and to be fair to him too, he might not even really have – an actual thought on this, but if someone asked him about it, then he ventured his opinion, then 
that's different than just coming out and saying, hey, I got a problem with this, you know. So if, if someone decides they want to ask you about it, then I guess it's different when you answer their question rather than just saying, hey, I'm mad about this. And one right. of the other good things about that system is a lot of people do like it and they do watch it. And uh, it gives you an opportunity to go out and play and the courses are not very crowded. Instead of sitting home watching TV, go out to your club or your, your public course and, and it's a great time to play. Probably a good rate this time of year and, uh, and not many people out there in That's your way. That's very true. Uh, uh, I remember watching Tiger Holes putt out to win the Masters while I was out on 16 putting out too. I had there the phone right there. So mm -hmm. you could take it. You could do both nowadays. Yep. Very nice. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up here, wrap up the show with a little close to the whole competition. So we will uh, get that going and then we will come back to you. Awesome. Uh, See you next fun. time. Have a good week, everyone.